I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora we all come from somewhere else. Find out more about and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. We're lucky to get our guest today. Not only is Craig Jordan Baker a lecturer in creative writing at Brighton University, not only is he a third-generation member of the diaspora, not only is he a writer who has had his work published in Firefly, Potluck and Text magazines, he's also got his debut novel, The Nicullians, being launched by Epoch Press on the very day of this broadcast. That's how on the pulse we are here at The Plastic Podcasts. Now please note, this podcast does contain instances of strong language, but only instances. Now with all this activity, the first question I need to ask Craig is, how are you doing? I am doing very well. I've just been um, out doing some early morning Morris dancing and I'm feeling uh, refreshed and raring to go. Yes, um, so I mean, so, well, let, let's, let's dive briefly into that. Folk traditions then. Are, are you a bit of a folky, would you say? I am increasingly uh, a folky, yeah. I, um, I, 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 I play the Bauron at, um, at a folk session. Um, I, I, I love to sing. Um, so I dance, uh, I, I, I Morris dance as well. So yeah, yeah, I'm uh, increasingly becoming a folky. Unfortunately, I can't grow a beard and that's sort of like i think a bit of a prerequisite um but i'm 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 kind of challenged in the beard area but if you can if you can stick one finger in one ear and grow an aaron jumper you should be fine oh well then that's okay yeah i think i can certainly manage that so these are kind of exciting times for you really aren't they they are a lots a lot's happening i mean after a lot not happening with lockdown etc there's um there's a lot going on of course for me as an academic there's the start of the new year but there's also of course the the launch of the book which has been a long time a long time in coming um you mentioned when we did the preamble here that you thought um, that two terrible things might happen over the course of this year the end of the world and you not getting your novel published yeah exactly those, those two things i'm really really uh, I'm, and i'm really glad both haven't happened so uh, effectively 2020 for me is turning out to be a rather super year for those of us that either a dream of aspire to or have no knowledge of what novel writing is about i mean it's like uh, once you've actually written and done your redrafts and so forth just how much time does it take to actually get it from i don't know your screen to published page well um so for, uh, so i was fortunate where um in in my route where I've, I've been writing for a long time and um i was at a reading where i read a short story um which actually turned out to be a chapter of one of um of the novel and um at the at this reading was uh sean campbell uh, the um, head of Epoch Press, and he was really enthusiastic about what he heard, and he said, um, I think this is a novel, and I, and I had scratched my head a little bit and thought, oh, it, it, could he be right? And um, he was right. And so it was, this novel was a fairly, I would say, compared to the experiences of a lot of writers who are trying to get their work out there, was, um, was blissfully straightforward i was tapped up by sean and um and i got on writing the thing and it, it did take um a fair old while um but certainly less than a year um so i think i've been really really lucky so did you ever see yourself as just being uh, as being a, a short story writer and academic primarily before that well 
well, not well, not even that. I once told my mother that she couldn't expect much out of me and I would be a bum and at best a poetic bum. So, um, so I've certainly, I've certainly managed to be a poetic bum. So uh, she should be pleased with that. Um, but, uh, I, I, I was working on a novel, um, uh, called Of Islands, um, uh, for several years before this novel, um, The Nakulians ca uh, came out. Um, and, and, um, that's a much longer and much more kind of complex novel that I don't think I had the skill at that point to write. So now with the experience I've gained with writing this novel, I'm coming back to, um, that project and um, reworking it. And hopefully in the next few years, there'll be number two uh, in the pipe. Ah, you see a small family of books. Yes, yes. Was your home when you were young, was it a, a place where a lot of the family gathered together? Was it a, a hub? A family activity? Um, it was, it changed actually. I, I think that I really noticed a, a big change in um, my, so I come from a, a, a council estate, a working class uh, community on the east side of Southampton um, called Thornhill. And I remember um, when I was a kid, there was a kind of sport um, and it was, very, you know, um, it was a strange kind of sport. And it was when the kids of the street would go out, you know, play with one another, there'll be a bit of rough and tumble and um, they'd get into a conflict and then they'd run home, tell their mum, and then mothers would come out onto their stoops and scream down the end of the road and call out the opposing child's mother, you know, Sandra, get out here. And then they'd have a great big um, Barney on the street and all the other mothers of the street would come out and enjoy this, um, enjoy this kind of vocal duel. Um, and that's one way in which um, <laughs> um, we had uh, a lot of uh, people talking to us and engaging with us. Um, but in terms of the family itself, um, my mother came from a very large family. So there were lots of um, aunts and uncles popping in, popping out. Um, and when I was um, a child, my family started to foster. So we had a lot of children um, that we looked after um, coming in, sometimes just for a weekend. And um, on one occasion, we had um, uh, a six-week-old baby um, delivered to us by social services, and he became my brother for 18 months before he was adopted. So lots of, lots of different kinds of <laughs> um, things happening in the house. And do you miss that? No, no, I, no, I can't, I can't say I do, but I'm really glad I had that um, early experience of, of caring for children. Um, I think that's, um, that's actually guided me to not to want to have children and not that I didn't like it, um, but I, I kind of learned what it kind of, some of the stresses and some of the difficulties of being a parent and they are, uh, and they are as you may be aware, um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's very demanding. Um, but I'm glad I had that caring experience. I think it taught me a lot about myself and what I wanted. And, um, and of course, you're helping children that are in often really, really difficult situations. So I think you know, foster caring is a great thing to do. So before we look at the, the kind of longer family history, I'd, I'd say, you, I mean, you're a, you're, you're, you're a, you're a lad on, on the east side of um, Southampton in a council estate, and then you decide that you're going to be a poetic bun. Um, were you an odd child? Yes, and I think I benefited from having a mother that was rabidly loyal and protective of my oddness. Um, uh, and I think if not for that, I would have had a much more um, difficult and miserable uh, time. Um, so, uh, yes, I was an odd child. I spoke very fast. I, um, I had a... a rather large vocabulary and I like to use it to the annoyance of, of my family and those around me. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy the classic sport of beating the shit out of each other, which was a kind of standing um, 
uh, thing that one did when I was growing up. I remember the constant conversations in primary school about who was harder and and you had to kind of sort out a, a pecking order and then there was another league which was whose dad was hardest now there was a difficulty here because you could kind of prove who was hardest by fighting another boy but you couldn't really or it was very difficult to kind of meander your dads into having a fight with one another so we just had to imagine whose dad was harder um and this was something i remember being a constant um, topic of conversation that often led to fights and I remember absolutely hating it and um, and wanting to just get away from it but having no other option but to kind of participate and so um, for those for lots of reasons I was I was an odd child um, and I think that oddness um, led actually to my interest in Irish literature culture um, and and history actually and I think it was through feeling odd and not like my peers that I um that I came to kind of uh, start to look in different directions and what I mean by that is I I remember going into I must have been in year seven I think and I went into the school library and I said I'd like to read some Irish writers please and um the librarian um scuttled off um and came back with Oscar Wilde and Seamus Heaney and um and I read i remember it was death of a naturalist and um and the collection wintering out and i remember devouring those two collections of heaney and being utterly transported into a world of of uh musical sensitivity that i hadn't hitherto experienced and it was really it really was a transformative experience i also um ended up reading lots of work that i actually didn't enjoy and i think this is something that's been really important for me. I started to engage with works because they were, um, in a sense, Irish works, and and I was trying to understand, you know, what it, what you know what this what this kind of Irish literary culture was, and I ended up reading things that I at the time really hated. Things like um, the Plough and the Stars, um, things like Playboy and the uh, Playboy of the Western World. That I didn't really get as a young teenager at all, and but it for, it formed the groundwork of being okay with not getting something. And I think people are really hung up. And I think when people approach art, especially people are really hung up on not getting something and they get really upset and feel really insulted if they experience artworks, they don't have the context for the knowledge for sometimes, and they blame the artist or they blame someone trying to be snooty. And I think because I had that quite early experience of reading the plow and the stars and going, what the, is happening and i'd have to then go off and read a bit about you know the, the, the rising and and you know and the four courts fire or whatever and um and to kind of understand what was going on that um that difficulty made me realize that if you if you explore the context more broadly sometimes art can art can then um be illuminated for you and um it's very important to understand the context of a work of art in order to appreciate what what it can offer you so going to your own context there you say that you um um you investigated irish writing um and you're what third generation yeah yeah so my grandfather um was from banbridge in county down um and i would uh and i would often you know sit around uh the table um, at his house on a Sunday afternoon and ask him about Ireland. So in some sense, I think I was looking for a mythic um, place that wasn't boring uh, council estate England. And I kind of got that. Um, my, my, you know, cause my grandfather had a very, um, 
mixed and interesting background um to, to say uh, to say the least some of that's found its way into the novel i think there's there's one uh chapter um called the adventures of nandad and Kulian, which is um a dialogue between um a grandson and uh, and the grandfather and telling his story of um effectively emigration or um uh, uh, to to england and that's a much um uh bloated and uh, kind of like highfalutin version of some of the things that I heard uh, when I was a kid. Not only is Craig Jordan Baker a writer, he's also a third generation member of the diaspora. Before concentrating on his grandfather's crossing from Ireland, I wanted to know more about the rest of his family. So um, my my father's my father's family um, were from uh, were working class Devonshire Devonshire folk who um, who didn't really um, weren't particularly ever really interested in us to put it I would say mildly um, and um, on my grandmother's side so my maternal grandmother she was uh, um, a woman that uh, lived on uh, she was on from Jersey well she lived on Jersey and she was actually um, she was actually in a concentration camp during the Second World War because she was um, taken by the Nazis for spying and something that a lot of people don't know is or forget is that the Channel Islands were occupied by the Nazis the story I was told was that she um, was caught drawing a plane. She was sort of a, a late teenager, caught drawing a plane, and then was taken by um, Nazi officers um, and, and taken to um, Poland and had and ha was treated relatively well because she was um, at least um, considered nominally Aryan. But she did, um, I think, lose part of her lung due to um, the, the conditions out there and, and getting really bad. Um, respiratory infections and um, I've seen her journal um, from those times in the concentration camps and it's got little bits of German that she learned um, du bist ein Luder you are a bastard I remember reading um, and um, and uh, you know she had a really really tough time um, and then she came um, then then when she was liberated she came uh, back and met my grandfather in Southampton um, and he had come across cleaning um, and initially was clearing out bomb sites during um, during the Blitz. And he told me a little bit about, um, you know, he alluded to seeing some really rather horrible things in uh, which I imagine were bodies in clearing out bomb sites during the Blitz. But he wasn't an active service person um, during the Second World War, but he was he was in England, um, you know, um, yeah, clearing out bomb sites, he told me. What brought him across? sectarian violence was part of it um i th uh he he once said something to me which really really struck me and you might even sort of might even see a, an element of it in the book where he told i asked him why he came across and he told me very bluntly that the um the protestants cut a hole in my prick and um and i remember being absolutely stunned at this statement and i and i th and partly because i was trying to work out the mechanics of it and i started imagining hang on what does my grandfather's prick actually look like <laughs> and um and it was a it was a really rather it was such a stark thing and given without any particular context um and he said no more and I, so i was left wondering <laughs> this kind of strangely surreal image of well pricks have holes in them don't they I thought, and <laughs> and so I wondered what uh, you know this extra hole might have looked like, um, and so it was a but it was a really kind of macabre and almost kind of surreally comic image, 
that I, that I held of me for a long period of time. So your, your grandparents have both come from very, very traumatic backgrounds. Your, your grandmother is, is essentially carted off to a concentration camp for purposes of art. She's drawing a plane. So when you decide that you're going to be a, an artist and so forth, is there, is there a suspicion, uh, it's like a, a thing don't, that'll get you into trouble? There's a, there's a kind of, um, I remember my, um, my, my father's funeral and I'm at the wake in Eastleigh Working Men's Club. Um, my father was a trackman and um, you know, works for the work. He, was a, he, he was a lorry driver and a trackman and, um, and I gave the eulogy uh, and um, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And um, I was in the toilet and I was pissing next to one of my dad's um, colleagues, uh, you know, working class guy from Southampton. And he said, oh, your dad always said you were literary and now I know what he means. And, and that really spoke kind of volumes about, I think, a really kind of broad attitude that I experienced where to even use the word literary was a kind of strange word that meant, meant sort of something that was outside of a lot of people's experience. It was viewed with um, suspicion in some ways. Um, I think my mother viewed it with a certain sense of pride without necessarily knowing what a writer was and what my literary aspirations were. She was happy that I was doing that, but she didn't really ask me ever much about it because as happens so often in working class families, when one member of that family is doing something that the others don't know anything about, they just remain silent about it. So if you happen to be an actor and you come from a working class family, well, loads of actors I know saying, yeah, my, my, my parents just don't even ask me about my work, you know, and then the middle class parents are like, oh, so how's it going? How, you know, did you get that job at the Beeb? And um, so I think there's a lot of silence around that which, you, that which you don't know. And I remember so powerfully this guy that I was pissing next to saying, you know, he always said you were literary and now I know what he meant. And I don't know if my dad sort of knew what he meant when he was saying that about me to his work colleagues, but it was, um, it was a, a moment where I, I saw the sense of discomfort and, and, uh, and not having anything to say about those other worlds that are outside of your experience. It actually links across quite nicely to uh, the, the, uh, the, the novel itself, uh, because, I mean, the Nicolians is described on the back here, and I'm going to read it out just to prove that I can. Uh, three generations of one family living in a brick house in a line of other brick houses. Um, this is um, a work which uh, kind of glories in the, I suppose, the everyday and the working class to a certain extent, doesn't it? Yeah, um, perhaps it's interesting that you say glories. I, I feel kind of a, I feel sort of, I think, it, I know, I see it as more ambivalent, but it certainly is soaked and, um, and drenched in, in that world. Um, uh, and, and, and I would like to think that it's, um, it's in no way sentimental. Uh, I would, I, I'd really like, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of, of sentimentality and sententiousness, but, um, but it is, but I do want it to be, um, a kind of reflection and a, not an account, but more of an inquiry into that world, into the, into the way in which um, working, working class families or families pass on um, experiences uh, that they might not even know they're passing on um, through the ways in which your great grandmother might have raised your, your grandfather, you know, and then how your grandfather raises your, your mother. Um, and you know, these are kind of sometimes inheritances, which we, which are are real they're felt they're material i think um but we don't often note them or notice them um and I, I, but they're very powerful things and i think by uh, by engaging with them and thinking about them we can come to understand 
what it is to be in a family better and also understand what it is to be from a certain kind of place better. So it's the thing about home. Yeah. Um, home is a really strong, um, a really strong theme, but it's not, again, it's, I don't think it's home without sentiment. I think it's home without sentiment. I think it's home. It's a, it's an inquiry into home and home can mean a lot of things. Um, I think for some of the characters in the Nakulians, there's, um, uh, Shannon Nakulian, who's a second generation, she kind of views Ireland as this kind of abstract, um, romantic place. And Bernard, um, who's her brother, has absolutely no time for it whatsoever. He even says, you know, it's shit over there. Of course it's shit. That's why they all come over here. And um, he's got a very, very sort of... Um, a fairly hostile attitude, um, I think, to anyone that isn't um, English. And he certainly, uh, the character is very, very keen on being English and fitting in um, and has a certain amount of embarrassment for his Irish father, I think. And so it's about, it's about the imaginary homes that we create. Um, it's about the, the streets that we live on and those homes. But it's also about how the, a city um, and, uh, and the broader spaces we live in um, can affect us so the novel isn't just about um, the family, but there are little interludes in the novel where I talk about different aspects of the city. Um, so I talk about the sky, I talk about the parks, I talk about the water in the city, how, um, how, how a city that's built upon two rivers changes how you cross the city, how you engage with it. And, um, and I think that's really important because for me, coming from um, the east side of the city, um, we're separated by, um, by the Itchin River. I always felt on the edge of the city and part of it was having to cross this river. And I always felt that, um, that we, I was far away from what was happening, you know, the center of town, the pubs and clubs, the, you know, the parks and so on. Um, and, and, and I realized later on that, uh, that part of my experience of even growing up was shaped by these really kind of very broad ways in which a city is even planned. And so that's something the book's interested in, in as well. It's about home from that, um, that um, top-down view, the bird's-eye view, and home also from that street level, and home also in that oniric sense, the place of dream, you know, the place we, the homes we dream about that aren't where we are now. And we have to dream about them because otherwise our existence is pretty intolerable. You write about bricks. Mm. And a lot about bricks. I mean, it's like um, looking at the book, the cover is made pretty much of illustrations of brick and also uh, Nandad um is a bricklayer yes so um sorry just topping up my water here and that that, that will be a relief to anybody just listening to that rather than seeing it <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed power of the power of the podcast um so uh so, so what was what was the bricks bricks um bricks are um this might sound uh well, actually, no, it doesn't sound strange at all. I think works that I like um, have a, what I call a symbolic order. And by that, I mean there's, um, there's something in the work that comes to mean something beyond its physical measure. And so you might imagine a story about, I don't know, a guy that comes from a peach farm and he goes off to the big city, but he always has a peach in his, in his lunch pail and he always eats a peach and it always reminds him of home. Now that's fairly bland, but it's an example of the peach um, functioning as something beyond a simple peach. And in the Nakulians, um, bricks and walls and building um, is, um, is in a sense the symbolic vocabulary of, of, of the work. 
Um, and Nandad is very au fait, not only just with bricks, but with um, the metaphysics of bricks and what bricks mean and how they reflect personalities and personality types and how different kinds of wall and different kinds of brick bond um, um, reflect different aspects of how we engage with um, the world. So there are two chapters that are named after brick bonds. There's one chapter called English Bond, which is about Bernard's um, uh, sort of um you know a rabid attempt to feel english by being a horrible racist asshole um and um and then there's also another um chapter called common bond which is um about um bernard as a younger man first going onto the building sites and trying to deal with this very masculine environment um in a way that doesn't embarrass or insult his father who uh, who he, he needs to win the approval of um in order to become a real a real man and a real you know bricky or a real builder we'll return to craig jordan baker shortly in the meantime, this is the Plastic Pedestal section of the podcast, where I normally ask one of my interviewees to nominate a member of the diaspora of personal, political or cultural significance to them. Given this is the start of the second series, I thought I would dip my toe in the water one more time. Last time round, if you recall, I nominated Terry Wogan, and this time I was going to talk about John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten, or whatever it is that you want to call him. Certainly, his was a voice you couldn't ignore over the course of the last 40 years. And with a father from Galway and a mother from Cork, while raised in acute poverty in Finsbury Park, this was the voice of the London Irish long before Shane McGowan. His stare was the stare of the outsider. His sneer was his own personal banshee wail. He was always one to push against what was expected of him. Even his decision to advertise butter was a kick against the pricks. And with an autobiography named No Irish, No Blacks, No Dog, he was clearly a diaspora artist who deserves his place on the pedestal. But I can't. I'm not a punk. I never was. At age 11 in 1976, I was more about Star Trek than the Pistols, more about dilithium crystals than anger as an energy. Even the music of P.I.L. left me feeling nauseated, the Metal Box album in particular, but maybe that was the point. So instead, I want to nominate someone quite different. I'm nominating Dave Allen. Now, like Terry Wogan, he was a native Irishman who found fame abroad. Firstly, in Australia, and then here. Like Wogan, he became a shorthand for a different kind of Irishman. But unlike Wogan, Alan was always an outsider. He would rail against Kant and hypocrisy, particularly in the church. He would skewer ridiculous arguments with a keen logic. He would champion the eccentric and face the world with a mixture of both joy in its strangeness and disbelief at its stupidity. He never talked down to his audience. He was happy to laugh at himself and always made you feel included. I'd have loved to have read a novel by him. And to an 11-year-old Star Trek fan, his was the voice of anarchy, albeit perched on a stool with a whiskey and a fag. And now back to Craig Jordan Baker. Craig's book, The Nakulians, centres on three generations of a diaspora family where the grandfather is a brickie, not unlike his own. Now, on a personal note, my own father felt depressed by being surrounded by red brick buildings in his first year over from rural County Clare. So does Craig think that our characters get shaped by where we live? Now, please remember, this podcast does contain adult language. One thing I'd like to know more about, I'd like to know more about a lot of things, but one thing I'd like to know a lot more about is actually architecture. And I've started to read, you know, I, I read, I've read a little bit about architecture and certainly about brick bonds. And now I go around and I can identify different brick bonds on houses. Um, 
but often you know if you go to a certain place you like i don't know luton for example you feel it's just so depressing but there's a malaise in that you can't put your finger on on why it is depressing like I was once um, traveling sort of through the, um, when I was a kid, we were, we were going from, we were going to Mayo for a holiday. And, um, and I, I, was, I was going through the kind of Midland kind of sort of county sort of Offaly and, you know, uh, sort of places like that. And I was thinking, God, this is, this is depressing. And, but you couldn't quite sum up why it was. And I think um, sometimes you go into an estate and you can't quite sum up w- what's depressing about it. And I think, I think that's a problem because, um, well, one, I want to explain everything (laughs) and I can't. Um, so I, it's personally frustrating. Um, but also it's, um, without that vocabulary, you can't necessarily describe what's awful about your context. And I think, um, for a lot of people actually going back to the book for a lot of people in the book, they don't always have the vocabulary to really understand and describe their own context. And so they're kind of bound by it and trapped by it. Um, you know, we talk about glass ceilings and you hear this kind of thing about social mobility and the glass ceiling. You know, you try and rise and and then suddenly you're stopped. But I think very often people don't talk about the fact that um, that some people don't look up even, you know, upward at all. You know, it's not even a thought that enters your head to rise up and then hit the glass ceiling. You're looking down at the concrete. You know, you're looking, you know, you're leaning against the wall and looking, you know, across, an, uh, you know, a level plane. So, yes, is the answer. Um, You know, I, I, I I really, I am, uh, I, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that the spaces that we reside in shape us in in the very in very daily ways, but also in ways which we don't necessarily know about or aren't really conscious of. Um, You know, I guess it's called today psychogeography, right? You know, there's that old thing about. the Liffey and you know if you're from the north side of the Liffey you're down at heel and you're uh, and you, you're, you're kind of rough around the edges and if you're from you know south Dublin then you're you know much more genteel and educated and even those ways of organizing space can change how we experience our lives and who we th- how we think of ourselves and others. Well there's a, there, there are sometimes practical reasons for that I mean um, a west end and east end of a, of a city are often defined by the fact that the factories would have been in the west of the city and the wind would have blown eastwards which means that would be like the area which is much more depressed because, simply because it's more covered in smoke. Yeah, uh, but, then, but then this idea still exists in a post-industrial society. You know, it, 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 it continues on. The stereotype, you know, it continues on. And, um, but that's bricks again, isn't it? That's like uh, what, yeah, so how that leads onto another, onto another, onto another. Yeah, and um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so bricks are really important to, um, to the novel and so, is, and so is the idea of building. And um, I think something was really something that's quite powerful for the character of, um, of Nandan Nakulian was, uh, is that when he comes across, he's a brickie, he comes across and he starts working on these English building sites and he is um, racially abused. He gets, you know, he gets lots of, um, uh, lots of, you know, paddy jokes and, and, you know, you know a fuck off back to your own country kind of um, statements. And, um, and then the wind rush happens and, um, and, and the book says, and that stops. And then suddenly, you know, this Irish guy becomes like Winston Churchill or Queen Victoria. He is, you know, as English as his English workmates. And um, that comes from a family story at, that I was told by my uncle, which was exactly that for my grandfather of being, having absolute, a terror of a time on the building sites um, in the, you know, in the kind of late forties. And then, and then along comes the wind rush and suddenly, you know, um, the, the, ire and the anger is being directed at the um at, at the at the caribbean guys 
when you look at the 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 the, the family of the Nakulians, do you like them? I acknowledge them. I understand where they are coming from. I understand some of the reasons that they are like they are. Even, you know, there's, there's, sometimes we, sometimes it's, we need to recognize the positioning of, of individuals, even if we find them really unpleasant. Um, uh, even racist, misogynistic individuals. I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't um, give them the credit of trying to understand them and trying to understand where they're coming from. And I think, um, you know, talking about Brexit, I think there's, there is an element of, you know, in people's surprise at Brexit. And I, I'll admit I was very surprised. And then after a little reflection, I, I became less surprised. And I, and I can understand that there's, in white working class communities, there's a lot of frustration, a lot of feeling left behind, um, a lot of um, feeling bewildered. Um, I think, and I, and I, I think that's, I, I think a lot of li liberal lefties don't want to acknowledge those people because those people make them feel rather uncomfortable um, because they, they are, they are sometimes, you know, blithely, um, you know, uh, um, you know, racist, misogynist, homophobic, um, kind of, you know, um, you know, ignorant. And there's, and I've, I experienced a lot of that when I was growing up um, and I, and I recognize it. And it's something that um, obviously I don't celebrate, but something that I, that I in the book as well acknowledge, I think. So yes, I, I don't think I like any of the Nikulians as such. I think I acknowledge all of them. And, um, and, and in that there's a, an attempt to kind of understand and you know, explore them. Is this a life you're trying to escape from? What, the, the one I have now? The, the, the one in the Nikulians? Um, yes. There is a sense in which I think for, so being, you know, working class kid, um, you know, didn't really have any expectations of university. I went to university initially to escape my mother. I mean, that was my main, main kind of reason. And maybe I could carry on being a poetic bum at uni. Um, that was my, my main reason. And also to, yeah, to escape. And um, there are characters in the novel um, that escape, uh, that maybe escape, but they escape in different ways. Um, you know, there's one perhaps uh, shining light in the Nakulian family who, that's Betty Nakulian, and she's rather, um, she seems rather talented, and she's she's a, a writerly figure, and she's ra rather smart. But she's viewed um, with, uh, I, I think I put it, that mixture of um, that mixture that's half, or she's called something of a writer by a mother, which is a mixture, which is half criticism and half admiration. And I, th <laughs> and I think a family, um, sometimes parents can be really rather good um, at kind of mixing admiration with criticism when their child is doing something they don't quite get, but um, and they're a little bit suspicious of. So yes, there, um, it is about, I think it is about uh, escape or about for the vast majority of people, there is no, escape i mean we tell stories about people that break the glass ceiling we tell stories about social mobility to salve ourselves um into believing that um you can if you work hard enough and believe hard enough and follow your dreams insert sentimental um um bilge pipe deluge um that you can make it 
Or, but, but, or, or just this horrible Tory narrative, which is if you work hard enough, um, you know, if you just take your breaks, you will inevitably make it. And if anyone doesn't, um, then, then you're, uh, you're, uh, you're a shite house that deserves to be where you are. And, and, and I really, I, I, I despise that that mentality and i think um also my characters or the characters that i like that i feel i i can the only characters i feel i can write about are characters that are more or less bound by the by, by context that they didn't choose um and are and they aren't these you know dramatic individuals like james bonds that go around and 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 change their own context they are bound by their context and they might and and their ability to uh, change it and and uh, uh, you know is minimal and i think at the very end of the book um i think the the irish times uh review of it said um the book ends in a whimper and i don't know if that was sarah gill martin was being complimentary or not but i but when i read that i i thought yes the book does end in a whimper and i think because i couldn't see a way of writing um in a way that honored the logic of the book that it didn't end in a whimper, that it didn't end in the same day being much like the last one. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more about us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. In the last part of our talk with Craig Jordan Baker, we discussed the parallels between his life and those of his characters in The Nicullians. We also get to talk about an unusual hobby of his. Something that that, that, that came to me in, 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 in whilst, whilst, whilst you were talking was this notion of exile. To a certain extent, your grandfather chose to be an exile or was forced to be an exile because of because of holes being being put in his genitalia. Um, yeah. Your you 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 yourself have chosen a form of like escape as well, both from you know, so I, could, I suppose your societal expectations and also from 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 the family and things like that. When you decide to go off to university and things like that, I mean, it's like you've chosen escape, and then here are people who can't be exiled, who who, who, who for whom escape and exile isn't a possibility. Is it better to be an exile than a prisoner? Um. So that is a very very good question i think um it is better to be an exile but uh but you have to accept that there's a constant there's there, there, not a constant sense but there's often a sense of discomfort and I, I think this is also something um in listening to actually some of your other podcasts i think a theme that comes up for a lot of people you know that have an irish background you know um and, may, and maybe feel out of place in some regard or other is that there's a sense of discomfort a sense of not quite belonging to any place or any one thing and uh, and i think that can be a source of uh tension um constant psychic tension but it also I think it's I think it's useful in that you're always questioning and you're never taking your context for granted your context isn't just isn't just um this sort of dead weight I think you're more likely to ask questions of it um and I think that's um that's um very helpful for a writer at the very least um and I think it does does come with dividends it, it comes with an with maybe a uh more of a tendency to be able to think about someone else's position and where they're and where they're coming from and why they might be there um so in being an outsider I, you can maybe the old i think it is something of a cliche but in being an outsider to some extent you can look in more clearly 
Does that mean that home is somewhere you're going to rather than where you are? I think home is multiple um, things, um, as, I've, as I've said before. And I think part of my home, uh, absolutely my home is um, Brighton. I feel very, very attached to, to Brighton and to Brighton culture and to Brighton's mentality. Um, uh, and culturally, you know, I feel very home here. I've also got, in some in some sense um you know uh, i looked you know i you, you still kind of look to um ireland as a, as an interesting place and not necessarily a home but certain a sense where you draw things from um and then there's that emotional aspect where i think for me home is other people home is being around the people i love i mean my partner is my home my um my sister is my home um and whether and whether i was in you know uh letterkenny or slough or or you know or um or bristol with these people to some extent i would be at home you draw fantasy islands yes i do so, I, so it, it seems appetite to ask it's sort of like um can you explain fantasy islands well so so the the um my the the novel i wrote first um is called of islands and it's a kind of beastery of uh of different fantasy islands um uh written by a, a kind of uh, a visionary metaphysical cartographer called Hieronymus O'Quire who who basically wrote this great big tome in the 17th century about islands that haven't been discovered yet but they are islands of the mind and the spirit and um that, that's the basic kind of very rough premise of of my book but i i draw fantasy islands um as a way of actually meditate sort of meditation i i scrib scribble islands and then i join up ferry networks it's all very odd and um uh and i think i like the island because it's something which is actually really rather comforting it's a it's a space with a boundary, a very clear boundary. And, um, and it's also a laboratory. Island communities, um, are, I think islands are places where you can experiment as well. So they are, um, they're a nice place for a fertile imagination to go. Um, and I think what's true of the imagination is also true for evolutionary biology. I mean, if you look at, the, if you look at island ecosystems and, uh, you know, you, you find freaks on islands you know you find very small things and you find giant large things and you find things that have evolved to only exist on that very small island and i think um islands as uh, imaginative endeavors are are the kind of same you can kind of change a few things and then see how it runs on an island and you've got a really strange um and wonderful uh, story to tell. So uh, um, I draw imaginary islands, I write about imaginary islands, and I'm also really interested in the history of cartography and, um, and phantom islands. Um, maybe I should explain uh, phantom islands are islands which appeared on maps in the past, but didn't exist. Are these like trap streets? What's that? A trap street is, an, is, a, is a street that a, a map maker will have put on a map uh, that doesn't really exist in order to catch out uh, potential plagiarists. Is this the same thing? Um, it, well, it's, but it was more because it was more because um, uh, you know before modern cartography and before satellites, most of you know uh, uh, most of your uh, uh, and air travel, most of your um, knowledge, cartographic knowledge, would often come from um, sailors and people that were taking making charts and uh, and you know they'll come back and they say, here we go, I've been to the West Indies, this is what I found, and very often um, people would get it wrong. But and then, but a cartographer would add 
this to a map and then of course someone would copy that map and then it's a kind of um generational inheritance <laughs> you might say and so um there are even you know there are even islands up to the 18th century which were phantom which didn't exist but were incorrectly or perhaps spuriously added um to maps um one island is um an island called frisland um which is um which is suspiciously close to iceland and appears on a lots of you know mercator and Ortelius's maps um as an as an island just to the south of iceland and now we think it was probably just a miss um a misapplied iceland but it doesn't exist um st brendan's island which is um of the you know the irish um saint that uh, went west and um apparently um settled on an island and had a, and had a, you know, a monastery there all completely fabricated but on european you know, maps of the renaissance you'll find st brendan's island um out in the atlantic and so they are Islands are uh, islands are places that are yeah fundamental human laboratories, and they are places we always uh, we always imagine as um, utopic or dystopic in uh, you know um, and so they're very powerful things for us I think. Oh, that's brilliant! I love that idea. I mean, it's, it's much more than trap streets because trap streets are deliberate, and these are just kind of accidental or, or, or mis mis you know, um, misascribed or you know uh, or, or sometimes people just wanting to you know maybe lie. You know, I saw this brilliant island and there's gold on it, and it's called and it's called Arcadia. You know, and <laughs> you know, and then we um you know, but Chiunanog, you know, um the land of eternal youth. Uh, you know, in Celtic um you know mythology, we have these um often islands or lands which are which are out there. We don't know where they are, but they are the wellspring and the uh, and the place of uh of of perfection. Um, they're you know they are where we put our our most um our, our greatest hopes and and they're both useless there but they're also can't be damaged because we're, ne we're not going to find that island lovely i love that in this run-up towards um uh, towards uh launch day and um obviously there are reviews in and the reviews have been pretty darn fine one of the one of them one of them um likened you to flan o'brien yes um uh uh, um that was that was lovely um actually uh that was cherry smith um who's an absolutely wonderful uh poet uh, who recently um wrote uh um a poetic sequence on the famine um called famished um and it's a brilliant poetic sequence and she um she worked it into uh, an actually performance piece with um a composer and um and uh, and a singer and it was touring i think it went to australia it toured around ireland and around the uk it's absolutely wonderful so cherry's someone i really really respect and um and for, so so for her to uh, to compare me to flan o'brien one of my one of my favorite writers um was um was a humbling compliment i and um and i i had a grin from here to here but of course you can't see my grin because this is radio Yes, I know, I know, but we we can hear it. Listen, that's the sound. Oh, that was okay, a big dude. one. That was a yeah. That's a, that's a huge grin. A huge grin. Yes, indeed. Um, how does that? I mean, so, yeah. You, I mean, so, I, I suppose you've answered that already with the with the grin from ear to ear. But when somebody writes something like that, you go, "Ooh, are comparisons odious?" Yeah. Um. I think you know the compare. I think she was probably trying to be nice, wasn't she? And you like someone that tries to be nice. That's that. But also, um. I think there is not not that I'm you know comparing myself in terms of the the influence that I'll have and the quality of my writing, but in terms I think of something which I really I really like about um, Flann O'Brien's writing, which is that Flann O'Brien will look at really quite horrific and horrible things and will not 
and we'll take the piss out of them and we'll laugh at them and we'll not treat them in a kind of sentimental and maudlin way. Um, and I think that's something that is, is, the, is actually it happens in a lot, quite a bit of Irish literature. Um, I remember my favourite Beckett play, Endgame. There's nothing funnier than unhappiness. And in Anna Burns' Milkman, um, a brilliant novel, um, there's, there's a phrase which, if I can remember it rightly, it's, um, do not go freshly into that terror. Which is, which is a kind of an idea that you might suffer awfully, but don't experience it like it's the first time. Don't experience it like it's something that happens to other people. These things will happen to you and, you know, and, that, and it's there and you've got to look at it and you've got to, in a sense, um, acknowledge it also by being maybe not blithe, but um, comic. And it's not stiff upper lip because the comedy can be, you know, sometimes quite seemingly cruel, but it's a way of staring at something more clearly and being able to face it by, um, you know, laughing at the fact that, you know, someone that's had a stroke can now only say the word mice. Um, and, and they can't do anything else apart from say the word mice. And they want to say, they want to order a cup of tea and all they can say is mice, mice. And they want to tell their son they love them and all they can say is mice, mice. Um, and I, uh, I think it's a kind, I describe it as a kind of um, guy rope that we get to the precipice of, of, you know, all that is awful. And comedy can act as a guy rope where we can tilt ourselves further into the precipice without falling into it. That's a lovely, lovely metaphor. But I then wander back and sort of like go, well, actually, so the Irish are often accused of sentimentality and uh, a maudlin nature. I mean, so like, um, in particular, where music's concerned. And if you've ever sat through an evening of watching country and Irish music, um, you'll know precisely what I mean. It's sort of like, uh, Mammy, I never, I, I never told you I loved you sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and oh, yes. There's, there's absolutely, absolutely that aspect. But um, uh, in, in terms of, I guess, you know, call it you know, high, the high modernism, uh, you know, uh, Irish writing, I think there's, um, uh, or even in something like, you know, you know Father Ted, you know, even, you know, that, we'll, that, we all, that we all know and love, uh, love very well. There's, there's a constant kind of like, you know, these people's lives are awful and shit and they're not going to change. And isn't that awfully, awfully funny? You know, uh, and um, but that's also the case with I think '80s alternative comedy like Bottom. Um, you know, uh, in some cases like um, uh, you know, uh, um, the Young Ones. You know, uh, Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson's kind of um shtick is often about people that are miserable and are desperately, uh, you know, and are, are desperate, and that's not gonna that's not gonna change anytime soon. So all you can do is um have a chuckle at them. Oh, that's the classic classic British sitcom, though, isn't it? I mean, it's like Steptoe and Son or The Likely Lads or Porridge. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think there's there's um, but you're you're right. There is there is certainly uh, 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 you know sentimentality in every culture, but um, but I think you know with you know the things I mentioned there with Burns and and uh, you know with Beckett and um like Flann O'Brien's The Poor Mouth, um, is sort of mocking you know, people uh, that, are, that are dying of starvation, sleeping with their pigs and desperately trying to outcompete one another in speaking Gaelic whilst they're starving. Um, it's uproariously funny, but it's, a, uh, a, but it's also a way of looking at, um, at, the, at, those, at those very difficult and awful, and awful things. And, um, and if you look at them, I, I, w I always worry, if you look at them in a too maudlin way, then, um, then it's almost as if 
that shouldn't have happened to you. Um, as if awful things don't happen to us at all. And those awful things will continue to happen to us. I always get really annoyed when you, you see a vox pop on the news and someone says, oh, you don't think that kind of thing would happen around here, do you? And I think, what? Of course it's going to happen around here. It happens everywhere. It's going to happen. And um, yeah, uh, maybe I'll just drop in one, uh, going back to Beckett. Um, Pinter once said of Beckett that every day he rubs my nose in the shit and every day I'm grateful. And that's the kind of <laughs> mentality that I guess I, I really admire. Brilliant. I mean, uh, leaving aside noses being rubbed and things like that, where in, where, where, when you were talking about uh, the, the, the notion that uh, if you stay a good citizen and work really hard and take your breaks and don't, and don't break the rules, you will get your reward. And, and those people that's like uh, that, that veer off from veer off from our cultural norms and what is expected and what is respected and so forth. Well, they're going to get what they deserve. Um, and and this takes me back round to what's happened here. The the thing that couldn't happen here, which of course has been COVID, which has been where where we've all been stuck, which is where we've all either discovered or or, or left home in in many ways. It's like it's either it's either reaffirmed bonds or it shattered them. Um, uh, where 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 families are concerned. Um, but also what we have is this notion that's like, um, that we're all supposed to do the right thing, despite our, despite, despite our tendencies to sort of like, uh, well, no, I'm a, I'm an autonomous human being. I'm, I'm, I should be allowed to do these bits and pieces. We've got this tension going on at the moment. Yeah. And I think more so now we're in, you call it a post lockdown situation where, I think there's much more, it's far less clear. I've heard people say that when lockdown was you know, at its height in April, you know, I felt kind of more secure. And now, we, now we've got options and sort of like, um, you know, uh, sort of a, we can do things and they're legal, but there's still a shroud of kind of like confusion or worry about what other people might think or whether um, this is just the government um, you know, making another you know, terrible mistake. Um, so I, I think we're in uniquely anxious making times but I, I think what's interesting for me is that um is that we're in very unheroic times and, and you know we we're often told you know adverts always tell us that you know we are unique and we are special and you've got to be unique and you drive this car and you are unique and you wear this lipstick and you are unique and you know the idea that you know we uh, um our lives are all about following our own unique special story and yet now our stories are like so so much like everyone else's and we are so bound by a context that we can't or only have a very small amount of control over i think it's really brought home to um uh to people how some of the lies of individualism i suppose um uh, it, it, you know um or the extent to which we are not as individual as we as we are often um uh uh flattered to be is that a good or a bad thing um i th i think um I, I i think it's a good thing i think acknowledging that we are very you know we are much more similar to other people than we often we often think and we and you know this idea that we this this star trek idea that we treasure our individuality um and while we are individuals i think i think recognizing our context again and how our context has shaped us is um at least allows us to explain ourselves and potentially um you know become more autonomous but i think that comes um, as a result of kind of knowing a bit more about how how much we are defined by the context that's around us.
You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Craig Jordan-Bacon. Music by Jack Devaney. The Nicullians is published by Epoch Press. Find out more about us by going to the website www.plasticpodcasts.com or you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. Alternatively, find us at Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You know how. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.